If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. For me, my connection to fungi was one that was born out of like this feeling of like kinship, right? That they, I saw in them something that I saw in myself. And I actually found that when I saw how I felt companionship and care and comfort around these organisms, and when I saw that people had a, such a negative reaction to those same organisms, that was very clarifying to me. It was kind of interesting. It was interesting to me, like, how could I feel so comforted by these beings that other people feel so revolted by? And actually, that was really helpful for me to see these patterns in my own life and my own way of being. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Patricia Kaishin, who is the curator of mycology at the New York State Museum and a professor of biology with Bard Prison Initiative. Her research focuses on fungal taxonomy, diversity and evolution, as well as queer theory and the philosophy of science. Her forthcoming book, Forest Euphoria, will be published by Spiegel and Grau. My identity as an Armenian person is one that a lot of people are not very familiar with. Armenians are a ethnic minority group in what some would call the Middle East, some might call West Asia or the Caucasus. And it's a group of people that many people have never met because there are actually very few of us. In, in Armenia today, there's actually just less than 3 million people who live in the country. And there's actually more Armenians in diaspora than there are within the country of Armenia. And that, of course, is due largely to the Armenian genocide that happened 
in and around 1915 and waves of violences that preceded that and actually continue to this day that have caused mass displacement of Armenian people. And the Armenian diaspora is in the United States, largely in New York and in California, but it's also all throughout Southwest Asia and the Middle East. So in Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, so places that have also continued to be imperialized and subject to violence. Um, so many Armenians have yet to find any stability even generations later after the genocide. So the story of Armenians is, is really complicated. It's not an it's you know a story often of fragmentation, of of fugitivity, and sometimes even a, a cryptic nature, right? It's an identity that people don't necessarily recognize right on its face. So for me, as a person growing up in, in the United States of Armenian heritage, it took a kind of a long time to fully understand what that identity meant and to under, and see my place in it as someone who had been, you know, several generations removed from living in the country itself. So I think I, I understand this as a very, for me, a very amphibious identity. It's a slippery one. It, it's at times very unclear and, and sort of non-binary in a way. And I, I see in that a relationship to other parts of my identity as well, that, you know, other parts of my identity in terms of my orientation as a, um, a queer person that, you know, doesn't really, people don't quite know what to make of right away. So I, as, a, as a child, I was always pretty conscious of this history. I am, I think I was sort of born an activist or an organizer of sorts. And it, to, to me, sort of grappling with the, the legacies of injustice has, has always been core to my identity. And that I extend to the, the more than human world or the non-human world as well. Um, so I, I do think that the lessons I've learned from my own experience have shaped how I interface with other types of complicated identities and other ways of being that are not maybe always recognizable to other people. Mm, and that's, of course, how mycology has come to be such a central way that you have try to explore your Armenian identity as well, right? Because it challenges a lot of standards and norms and all of that. Yes, exactly. So, you know, the connection wasn't always obvious. You know, it's something that I sort of started to piece together. Like I was drawn towards fungi and mycology because of this sort of inner resonance that I felt with these organisms that had been long misunderstood and, and sort of discarded, right? And other creatures as well, though. I actually, some of my earlier, the creatures that I most connected to when I was a smaller child were like snakes and frogs, turtles, things that, like swamp creatures, right? Things that were, existed in these mucky spaces that were seen as sort of disgusting to other people. So the connection that I've made with my work as an Armenian person is sort of like, you know, I, I've seen it, it's something that I've sort of almost understood retrospectively as I've and then have sought to kind of continue to cultivate that connection as time has gone on. So, 
for me, my connection to fungi was one that was born out of like this feeling of like kinship, right? That they, I saw in them something that I saw in myself. And I actually found that when I saw how I felt companionship and care and comfort around these organisms, and when I saw that people had such a negative reaction to those same organisms that was very clarifying to me it was kind of interesting it was interesting to me like how could i feel so comforted by these beings that other people feel so revolted by and actually that was really helpful for me to see these patterns in my own life and my own way of being right so i i found that they taught me in many ways about how to accept myself and I think my own self, you know, the self-acceptance that I had been grappling with in my own life kind of made me open to forming these relationships with a group of organisms that had historically been really cast aside. So I do see these things as being very related. And also, of course, the the way that fungi are in this in their nature, their being of, they're sort of neither plant nor animal. They have both sort of qualities of both fluid and solid. They form these webs of interconnection in which, you know, it's hard to differentiate an individual from a group or from a collective. And these are things that, you know, I, I, I see in my own, both in, in my queer identity, but also in this, my identity as an Armenian person, right? And, and particularly one that has a very fragmented lineage. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. In your piece, Mycology as a Queer Discipline, you share that complex social histories have influenced outcomes and trajectories of mycology, rendering it a marginalized science, end quote. I would appreciate it if you can share more about how particular cultural perspectives on mushrooms and fungi rooted in our social histories have prevented people from really embracing the field of mycology, because I think it is really interesting to consider how social dynamics and cultural norms might influence or skew scientific research and knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that as a, so I'm a scientist, I, I am formally trained in science. I have a, a PhD in mycology. So I've gone through sort of this like very particular academic training and, in a, you know, the culture of academia. And I love science. I think it's a very powerful and fascinating tool. It's a tool that has revealed so much knowledge and beauty about our, our, our universe. And I think that I have a lot of respect for the scientific method and, and the goals that the scientific community sort of coalesce around, which is like to, to produce knowledge that is understandable in some way to, you know, regardless of culture or regardless of what year it is or, or what have you, right? There's like a set of of ways that we produce information or and ask questions about the universe and interpret that information so that it can be as understandable as possible. And I think that that ideal is really wonderful, And but I often think that we fall short of that. And I think science has a very long history of unexamined biases and social lenses that it's been conducted in and through that affect what we know and who, you know, there's so many ways in which the human perspective enters the, this supposedly objective pursuit. And, and, I, and I think that there's no getting around that. But the problem really is that many scientists 
exists in the culture in which to acknowledge that and to talk about that is seen as somehow inherently political and it is then therefore ignored, right? So there's this sort of pressure to not be political in science. But as I think many people would agree, the choice to not be political is is sort of a false choice, right? To, to choose to not see the ways in which you as a person, as a human, are affected by the world around you is not a way of preventing being affected by the world around you. It's just to simply not talk about it. Um, and so throughout the history of science, there's so many examples of like people being pretty explicitly biased in particular ways and sometimes very harmful and evil ways. And then and other times just sort of, you know, may, may neutral, but not nonetheless, not objective ways. And that actually affects like what we know about the universe, right? So if you if you're asking questions about, for example, the organ like about mushrooms, and the culture around you is telling you that they're disgusting, that they're deadly, that there are diseases, that they're, you know, maybe even associated with the demonic and devil and all of these things. Um, you are less likely to think about or ask about, you know, what if they are actually these life-giving, ecosystem engineering, dynamic beings that can be, that are actually responsible for like the forest's health, right? So when, when we, over time, we've seen that the culture, particularly of Western Europe and Euro-American institutions, was responsible for forming like what became sort of the dogma, right? What became the bedrock of, of knowledge, what was accepted into canon was information generated by European and Western European institutions because they, of course, were in had uh, power, right? So they were able to determine what was legitimate information, what, who was the legitimate scientist, and who could participate in the in the practice of science, and whose work could be published, and so forth. So all of these moments, all of these influences, of course, create a particular knowledge base that is socially and culturally located, and. It happens, I mean, and for very, for reasons that are not fully clear, but it, mushrooms and fungi be, were not considered worthy of formal investigation by professional scientists in sort of the Victorian science era in Western Europe, and for a while thereafter as well. So we just did not study them intensively the way we studied other organisms. Um, so that literally means we know less about them, right? So the way science plays out is... It's a social endeavor. And again, I'm a scientist who loves science. And I think the way of making science more accountable and actually better, and by better, I mean to actually learn more about the universe, would be to, to talk about this, to talk about the ways in which culture influences what we're interested in, how we ask about it, and how we interpret that data and communicate that data. And I think, you know, it's in our best interest at, collectively as scientists to, to be very serious about that. And sometimes it's, you know, you know, fungi knowing about a particular, it might lead us to learning more about how fungi function in ecosystems. And then there's also, but it's all manner of implication to that as well, like in medicine and, you know, other aspects of, of, of health, of social health, of, you know, in social sciences as well. Yeah, totally. If the goal were just to learn as much as we can about ourselves and the world, then 
yeah, we should always maintain a humility to ask questions about even the lenses that we're applying in order to better understand the world. Absolutely. And here I'd be curious to go deeper and also explore the relationship between mycophobia and queerphobia, because I think it even more clarifies why we need to rethink the whole idea of scientific objectivity. So what would you say mycology calls into question in regards to objective truths and repeatable outcomes as the measure of credibility? And I wonder if you have any examples of how maybe research on mushrooms may not be able to be continually replicated because of how they in part act as a synthesis and reflection of their ever-changing and very dynamic environments and communities. Yeah, thanks for asking about this, because this is something that I think is really important, and particularly when we're talking about climate change and sort of the planetary crisis that we find ourselves in and, you know, our conservation goals and, and frameworks. So, I think there's a lot there's a lot here to this question, but I'll start with talking about how we we sort of as scientists are working in the realm of conservation. So we know that we have a biodiversity crisis that is linked with climate change. You know, climate change is is many things, but one big part of it that I think is not actually discussed enough is the loss of the massive loss of biodiversity due to mostly due to habitat destruction or alteration. And so we have in in the United States and in and other across the world different measures of uh, or, or measures of of you know documenting risk to species. So in the United States we have the you know federal lists for endangered species or threatened species, and then there's also international lists as well that document the threats that different species are experiencing. And fungi are really, really poorly represented on these lists. So, for example, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature has a red list, which is, you know, documenting these threats. And fungi on that list, there's only about 500 species of fungi compared to about 28,000 species of plants. And I want to say like 35,000 species of animals so it maybe if you look at that, you might think, oh, fungi are not as at risk to climate change and habitat destruction than plants or animals because there's orders of magnitude fewer of them on the list. And we know that there are millions of species of fungi. So maybe they're just doing better. But actually, that would be the complete wrong answer because they're only so poorly represented on the list because they're so poorly studied and we have very little data about them. And not only that, the way in which, as you were sort of talking about, the fungi their very nature, their very biology is really difficult to quantify often. Not Now, there are some species that are very reliably found in their habitat that can be counted and sort of quantified, um, similar to how you might count or quantify a flower or a tree or a bird. But many fungi exhibit a much more ephemeral, cryptic, creeping, and sort of difficult to decipher way of being that makes their kind of proving their risk or their their decline can be really, really difficult. But nonetheless, they're held to the same sort of biological norm and standard as other species that we're more familiar with, like vertebrate animals, because that's what we've established as the, the burden of proof, right? We need to prove that these species are at risk. We do so by, you know, documenting them over time and measuring their de decline in particular quantifiable ways. But if simply a fungus is sort of slipping out of our reach and out of our, our 
beyond our tools, then it's there's no real recourse for proving that they're declining, even though we can be sure that, for example, that their habitat is like basically gone, right? There's also this like problem where in I think we think when we think about conservation in these these lists, which of course I I respect so much all of the effort that's gone into them and, and this into the effort of conservation. And so this is not to to dismiss the labor and, and efforts of those who've worked so hard to pr- protect species, but we are nonetheless working in this very individualized conception of what a species is and what it even needs to survive, right? So fungi have this capacity and many, many species of them have this capacity to, to form more symbiotic relationships with their habitat, whether it's mute, the mutualisms of the mycorrhizal fungi, or if it's fungi that live within or on other species, like within the tissues of other animals, right? Fungi are very often in and with on other species, and they are challenging our ability to really make sense of what an individual is. And they kind of what I find so beautiful and inspiring about them is that they can challenge our our sort of deeply held notions of like caring about an individual. So for example, like what if what if the framework of conservation wasn't about proving that each individual species was either at risk or not, but but recognizing that there isn't separate, there isn't actually a true ability to separate any given species from its ecological niche, that it is just part and parcel is a component of a niche, right? And 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 we I think that we as humans have been operating in this very individualized sort of like perspective where we can we see ourselves, for example, as apart from nature, right? We're sort of something separate from the rest of the tree of life. And I believe that's a big part of why we find ourselves in this crisis in the first place is that we are protecting what we think is our own interest by by being massively selfish, but in doing so, we're destroying the things that we're actually deeply interdependent on. Um, so while fungi might not neatly fit into these conservation frameworks that you know we've been utilizing, they're actually kind of pushing us to to realize the shortcomings of those as well. And again, it's not to dismiss the the important work of conservation scientists who are who who are you know trying to protect species, but it's to maybe challenge us to be more imaginative about how we move forward in this world during this time of. Of, of crisis, right? So, so fungi are, are, you know, when you see a mushroom, it's growing in the forest, maybe you, you've, you're walking in the forest and you see a log that's covered in fruiting bodies, right? And so one question we have as mycologists is, okay, are those one individual mushrooms? So you see 20 of them, but maybe they're, are they, are they one because they're maybe coming from the same mycelium or are they, you know, 20 because they're, they're separate fruits of this mycelium, or maybe there are multiple mycelia in the same exact place and their fruits are all sort of combining and blending. And how would we, how would we count that? You know, how do we, how do, do we count that as one? Do we count that as as 20. And these are um, questions that we have, right? Because either answer tells you something about, you know, the fungus, right? So if you count them as 20 fruits, that's going to tell you that the fungus had enough energy to produce 20 fruits. So if you don't, if you count it just as one, then maybe you can see that maybe you're right that it's a genetic individual, but you're not giving information about how that genetic individual is thriving or not thriving in its habitat, right? So 
you know, other species are just le- like, especially like a tree or or a bluebird, right? They're, they're not sort of sprouting pieces of themselves and, and then reabsorbing that into their flesh and putting it up somewhere else a year later, right? They're just a little bit more fixed. And so fungi are just really complicated in our ability to get, get clear data about them. Yeah. I I love that fungi puts so much into question, including, as you mentioned, the idea of separate individuals and distinct species. And with Mm -hmm. that, I actually want to go back to a really basic question, which is then what are fungi and how would you go about defining them? And of course, I want to be careful with defining this kingdom in any sort of a rigid or bounded way because they seem to defy a lot of dominant standards of categorization. But what are some of their common denominators? Is it the roles that they play in a community? Is it certain traits and characteristics? What is your best understanding of what fungi are or do or how they relate to other community members? However you want to approach this question. Okay. So yeah, I I think of fungi. So I'll start with a more just sort of straightforward taxonomic way of describing fungi. So fungi are a kingdom of life. So like like the plant kingdom or the animal kingdom. So that's the taxonomic unit that we're using when we talk about this group of organisms. And they are characterized by sort of a collection of traits that in their in totality separate them from other kingdoms. So they, for example, for a long time, they actually were thought of as plants mistakenly because they're not plants. They're actually more closely related to animals than they are to plants. But for for most of our the taxonomic history, they were put as a group within the kingdom plants, and they were considered lower plants. But now we know that they they're not plants, and they've been removed from that kingdom and properly established in their own grouping. And one thing that they so they they are they have a collection of character traits like they are, for example, heterotrophs, meaning that they eat. So like animals do, they don't, we don't photosynthesize, but we eat, right? We, we have to source our nutrients somehow, usually with the production of enzymes and digestion, right? So fungi are heterotrophs. They are also, they have chitin in their cell walls, which is really a common as a material that's found in fungi that is pretty characteristic of the group. They undergo intranuclear division, which is a way of sort of dividing their their um, genetic information. And they also have like, they produce spores and discharge spores. Um, so all of these things would be like a technical way of talking about them scientifically. And then of course, we now have also molecular evidence that positions fungi as unique from both plants and animals, but being closer to animals and amoebae, things like slime molds and other amoebozoa. But then there's also, I think, you know, I think that's a useful way of framing them. Then there's also, though, this idea of like, well, how are they perceived, right? I think a definition of fungus, of fungi is also, it's a scientific one, but it's also like kind of what I was saying earlier, it is also somewhat a social one. Like it's is their, I think their their identity is tied with their history of per, the, how humans have perceived them. Um, so a lot of people have a relationship towards fungi that what we would call, mycologists would refer to as mycophobic, right? Which is being kind of fearful of them. They, they are they are often in, found in dark, damp areas. They are kind of ephemeral. They can be um, micro or macro, right? Or, and they can be both. They can go between micro and macro phases of life. 
And I think also there's this positive aspect to fungi. They're, I think, definition. I when I think about what they are definitionally, they are life giving organisms. They're organisms that have shaped and created the earth that we and the way that we now recognize it. Um, they're bound up in our our as human evolutionary history. They live in our guts. They live in all of our tissues. They make food for us. And they are this, you know, dynamic microbial and macro organism that, that has shaped, shaped the earth and, and gave way, in fact, to, to human evolution as well. So all of these things are ways in which I kind of define fungi. <laughs> so in consideration of how fungi haven't been able to be aligned neatly within the framework of how species are typically defined or measured in terms of how or whether they're deemed endangered, I'm interested in hearing what you've thought through in terms of taxonomy in mycology and how species are defined in this realm. Like, how have you approached this work without it falling into the same bounds of conventional methods of categorization and maybe instead have the intention of identifying and classifying new species with a lens of queerness and, yeah, with an understanding of the limitations of defining in rigid ways altogether? Yeah, I, I love this question because... I am a taxonomist. I am someone who names, describes, and classifies new species of fungi. And I'm really fascinated by how taxonomy is a really powerful and, and sort of effective, interesting science, and I would argue an art form as well. And also, I'm really aware of the limitations of naming and, and, and sort of imposing limits and boxes around organisms. So I also am very conscientious of the fact that taxonomy has some of its roots in colonialism and at times has been used to displace the names of organisms that were known and were in the intimate companions of indigenous peoples. So it's a really complex field and, and I'm, I, I really am interested in these tensions. I came to mycology and to taxonomy specifically, because I wanted to, I saw it as a uh, taxonomy as a practice of honoring organisms. So for me, my relationship to this practice is with this understanding that giving an organism a name and reflecting on its journey, evolutionary journey that it's been on, however quietly and however outside of the human gaze, this is something worthy of celebrating and worthy of making, you know, a record of, right? Sort of recording these chance encounters that we have with other beings on this planet. So to me, naming is not stamping something and, and branding it or putting ownership over it, but it's about, to me, I, I see it as sort of an act of humility. Like I am on this planet as a human species, a member of the human species, and so are you, right? And you are, in this case, I study these really small microfungi that, that live on insects. And very few people have ever seen them because you, it requ they require a microscope and, and to be looking for them pretty explicitly. So sometimes I, I'm aware of that. I may have be one of the only humans that have encountered in a direct way this species. And they're not really particularly useful. Like they're not 
you know, in, in a conventional capitalistic sense, right, they're not profitable. But so but that would not be why I would want to celebrate them, right? So that that's sort of my relationship to the craft. Um, and I say it's an art because there is decision making involved. I mean, in the naming itself, right, choosing the name, um, but also sort of recognize grappling with this idea of like, what is a species, right? What are the limits of the species concepts that we're using? What ways in which do they affirm these, this, the, you know, the fact that this is a lineage that is distinct from other things. It has its little idiosyncrasies molecularly that have made it present, you know, that have evolved and emerged as these unique little features. But then there's also ways in which, you know, emphasizing difference would not allow us to see the full picture, right? And instead, we, there's also this knowledge that these things are deeply situated in, in the environment itself, right? So th thinking about, about how, for example, like organisms, we're not really existing in a vacuum. We are this call and response of, you know, between our DNA and the landscape and the other organisms in that system. Um, so I love thinking of organisms as being like the, you know, their genetic code is like the relief of all of these interactions that are around them and that came before them. So taxonomy to me is this, is this practice, right? And I, I do, I, I think that it can, if done with that type of intention, make us conscientious of just how staggering the diversity of this planet is. And, and for me, it helps me be reminded of the smallness of humans in, in many ways of myself specifically, but also of the species, right? We are just here so briefly in the scheme of things like the, the fungi that I study, they're called Labolbinielles, um, which is the taxonomic order. It's kind of a mouthful, but you know, they emerged evolutionarily, we think like 400 million years ago. And I mean, that's, can't, that's like an incomprehensible amount of time. And when we think about, you know, how long the human species has been here, it's, it's just a fraction of that. So I, I, I think that they help me reflect on, on being in, in intimacy with these organisms as a way for me to meditate on the smallness of, of us, and, and which is, a, to me, a good thing, right? I think it's good to be small. I think it's good to be part of something much bigger than yourself, um, both in your individual life, but also, I think, as we think about the, the human relationship to the earth. Mm. I really love and resonate with the idea of naming not as mastering or boxing in or imposing limits, but as honoring and expanding our awareness and humility. So thank you so much for this perspective. What I also really appreciate is how you've differentiated between pseudoscience and the real harms that it can have and alternative ways of knowing because it can feel murky, but it feels like a very important distinction. So I would love it if you, if you can elaborate more on that and on the difference between tools and the truth that everybody might be working towards. And also, as we kind of touched on earlier, on the problems with conflating replication and standardization with knowledge itself. Yeah, this is a, something that I think is really important as we, you know, right now, like, there's so much political tension, you know, I'm speaking from living in the so-called United States, and there is, there. I mean, there's been a long history of the politicization of science, right? But that I, I think there, it, it, 
there ha- that's intensified in a way. It's shifted. You know, we I feel like there used to be a lot more debates about evolution. And I think that's sort of like dying down a little bit, thankfully. But now it's like shifted into, you know, of course, COVID and vaccines and all of these things. And and so I think that that having a high degree of science literacy is something that's really, really important, whether or not you're a scientist or a policymaker, but just being a person trying to navigate the world. And I, I am very wary of pseudoscience. So I would like to, I guess, my what I, the way I think about pseudoscience is it's a claim or a statement or a set of statements or claims that is trying to appear to be abiding by the standards of science, but failing to do so and doing so in a way that is somehow manipulative or with the intention to deceive or to capitalize on something that, uh, you know, to sell you something or to somehow benefit someone over another, right? And so it Pseudoscience is 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 asserting to be using the scientific method, or you know maybe misleading someone into thinking that the, you know it's a real study, or it's like their their results are valid, even though they maybe got contradicting results, or you know it can be done in a lot of different ways. But to me, it, it there has to be a level of intentionality in that, or just a gross negligence. And I I think that that is really, that's always bad, right? It's always like not good. But what's really different in my mind from what would be, I would call and others have called other ways of knowing. So ways of being in the world that is not claiming to be science, right? So this could be religious beliefs. um, This could be astrology. This could be, uh, I mean, some people might, be saying it's science, but those who don't claim it is, but believe it in and practice it, it could be also just like your own personal belief that, for example, like I'm going to say, like, I believe that biodiversity is is sacred and earth is sacred, right? And that's not rooted in a very specific religious tradition, but that's something I believe. And it's not that I don't justify with science and I don't feel the need to justify that with science. So, of course, scientists can be people with complex belief systems, and many scientists are, you know, but then those are those are different things. And so another way of knowing is you know, would be traditional ecological knowledge, some of which would, I think, fall into the definition of science, but not all of it would, right? Some of it would be more culturally located, cultural stories, ways of, you know, understand, making sense of the world that isn't purely standardizable or isn't replicable in, in very explicitly, and but it is nonetheless bounded in something very profound and, and essential to maybe being in that culture. All of the, the, that is not pseudoscience, right? So I think that those things are so often conflated and there's a, a kind of, you know, type of person that I encounter a lot who's, you know, I call them like this a lot logic bros, <laughs> but and it's but it's not always men. Um, but who are like, you know, who think that everything what it's only valid valid or valuable or um, if it is literally scientific fact. And I think that there's a really big problem with that when we think about what we were talking about earlier, which is the legacy of science, which is socially located and flawed. And at times heinous, like, you know, like when, if you think about eugenics and, and so forth, and then it's also a problem because it, it, so that, that you're then asserting that worldview onto people 
who are who are you know coming from a different worldview and and I think that also it puts this burden of proof on you know justifying so for example when I say that I believe that the earth should not be destroyed even if it was scientifically like even if climate change as we kind of now understand it wouldn't occur but because I believe that like organisms aside from human have the sort of right to to exist in their ecological birthright like if I can't if I can't justify that scientifically, then I could be told that that's like just pseudoscience or that's like just stupid, right? And and fine, I mean, I guess if you want to believe that, I'm uh, that's that's up to you. But to me, there's a lot of I think these are these are like philosophically just really different things, right? So I'm kind of forgetting what your the next part of your question was, but I think we could if so could you maybe restate that? Yeah. Wasn't really specific questions, but I guess just elaborating on, I mean, you kind of touched on this, elaborating on the difference between tools and truth, which with what you just said, it does remind me of my most recently published episode with Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, where she mentions that the, the science and tools of physics for her, for example, is not meant to answer questions of religion and spirituality. And it's okay to have that humility to know what your set of tools are equipped to be used for in terms of knowledge seeking. Yeah, so I, I follow her work, and I think she's a great, um, amazing scientist and, and science communicator. And I, I agree with that idea. You know, I think a good scientist are, are people who recognize, you know, reflect as much as what we do, on what we don't know as what we do know, and are very conscientious that we like, you know, we're swimming in the, this vast and infinite universe, and we we don't have omniscience, and we and. And so, you know, there are limits to what we know. And, and all the time we see science sort of course correcting and, and revealing new things that we didn't know previously or, or, or sort of complicating what we thought was maybe established fact, right? So that, that, that happens all the time in science. So I think science is a, an amazingly powerful tool that I use both because I, I think it's wonderfully it, like invigorating to be able to investigate the world and reveal things but then also because, you know, I'm trying to leverage my skills as a person to sort of protecting the earth. And so my I deploy science as a tool towards the protection of the earth, you know, trying to prove that my fungi are endangered or, or, or you know, essential members of our ecosystem. But then I also am pursuing my other belief in this sort of parallel but separate way, which is that I, you know, that I, I believe that whether or not we can prove a fungus is going extinct, it, it deserves to be able to exist, right? So yeah, that's me using science as a tool and then also me sort of having this parallel belief system as well that's related mm-hmm. but different. Yeah. The final theme I would love to explore with you is the concept of deep time because it's something that has always felt a little abstract for me personally, but I think could really help us to open up other ways of seeing and relating to the world. So on this note, I wonder if you can speak more about all these fascinating tiny events that you speak to that we're constantly engaged in at a biological and relational level. And with the backdrop of our sixth mass extinction in mind, what you mean when you suggest that it is actually pleasure and not pain that drives the process of evolution? Yeah. So, okay. Starting with deep time. So when I I think humans are really not very good, our brains were not 
did not evolve with the need to process like the you know the entirety of history of the earth like the four you know billion years or so of the earth's history and all of the evolution that preceded us or the you know the history of the universe or these things are i think are are just so um incomprehensible and scale. So when we talk about deep time, we're talking about an amount of time that so far exceeds the human lifespan that it actually renders us, it's almost like the idea can only exist in the abstract, but then and yet we see all around us, all of the, like in everything we do, every moment we're existing in and alongside species that have been there for, you know, millions or hundreds of millions of years. And so I think when we think about the climate change, we're thinking about this crisis that has happened in such a small snapshot of time when it comes to, you know, the history of life on Earth. And when we think about the fact that basically just in the last 200 years, like since the Industrial Revolution, we've seen the massive decline in like another wave of extinction and the, you know, the the absolute alteration of the face of the earth and the chemical constitution of the planet. And this crisis that we're in, it it feels like it, it, it's been going on forever, but really it's just happening in the blink of an eye when it comes to biodiversity. And when we think about, for example, that like, you know, 99% of all the species that have ever existed on earth are actually extinct now because there have been so many waves of radiation of, of, um, not like chemical radiation, but evolutionary radiation, like species emerging in their lineages, dividing and splitting and covering the earth. And then, you know, some major planetary event happens that changes fundamentally the ecosystems that let them leads to these mass extinction events. So this has happened, you know, there are five previous mass extinction events. So in totality, like there's so there so much has happened and come before us, we really can't even wrap our minds around it. But it, it's essential to think about this when we think about the climate crisis, because we need to act in a way we can't fully grapple deep time, I think. But what we need to do is recognize the hubris in believing that what happens now on earth is the most important thing and that our comforts now could be more important than the sort of entire dynamic of the planet, right? It's it's such a insane, almost pathological, I think deeply pathological way of seeing the the world. So I, I find that this meditation on deep time gives us that smallness I was talking about earlier that is essential in cultivating humility and care and stewardship. So when I think about like all of these millions of interactions also, I also think about like when we think about our human body and our DNA, there isn't understanding there isn't like a a legibility or a way of really seeing this body without seeing it as part and parcel with the ecosystems through which it evolved and not just our like exact human species but the all of the species that came before it you know when we were just like four-legged basically like fish that that slithered onto land and 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 then the all the organisms that exist in our our 
tissues that make the biological processes that we recognize as human, human, right? Uh, that we can't exist without them. And that type of sort of interdependent way of thinking, I think is, is really lacking, even in our climate justice movement, even in, in the sort of environmental movement, right? It's, there's still this narrative of our singularity and our exceptionalism that, that takes up a lot of space. And what I think I, and, and a lot of the thinkers that I've been inspired by and I, that I read frequently, so thinking of Donna Haraway, uh, Dr. Robin Kimmerer, Anna Singh. You know, I, I co-authored this piece, the queer mycology piece. Um, I co-authored that with a friend of mine, Hasmik Jalakian, who's a feminist and um, who studied gender studies. And, you know, there's, I think that we need to think about these things in ways that that make us really reflect on this, on, on our interdependencies, right? And that, that's something that I think science is also starting to come around towards, but I've, I've, I, a lot of the thinking that I've really learned from about this is has been rooted in in more feminist, queer, and traditionally feminist queer theories and traditional ecological knowledge. I think we have a lot to learn from those disciplines as well. Mm. Well, we are coming to a close for our main discussion here, and I would love to leave room for you to share about your forthcoming book, Forest Euphoria, and anything else that's on your mind right now. And yeah, just any other cause to action or deeper inquiry you have for our listeners. Thanks so much for, for inviting me on here. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about my book. I'm it's called, as you said, Forest Euphoria, and it's a queer bestiary. It's a collection of essays that all focus on different organisms um, that are somehow queer or sort of challenging our perception of what is like normal or beautiful or possible. It doesn't have a, a release date yet, but I can I can send updates as I have them. I'm really excited to have that be out in the world. So, you know, I'm I'm what I'm interested in, in right, like sort of the spirit of writing that book is, is to, to show um, and help share how, A, like sort of what we were talking about with science being, you know, this imperfect discipline that is, has revealed so much to us, but, you know, we can actually further leverage to understand our various identities and the, the biodiversity of humans better, right? So our in our in our our neurotypical or neurodivergent ways of being or queer ways of being. And I want people to, you know, what I'm hoping for is that to communicate how for me it was literally like life-saving to find these companionships with nature and with organisms um, and to have that intimacy is something that has brought me tremendous joy and comfort and it's a blessing that I think of the greatest kind and I want other people to have that too and I think um, so I'm hoping to sort of share a little bit about that. Um, so one of the things I care the most about is is just sort of helping people form a relationship to nature. And it can be, for many people, it, it can be and probably should be something that's, you know, private, right? That you just, do, you don't try to make a, a living off of or a career from, but you just in your daily life have this special bond. Um, and so I, I, that's something I care a lot about. And I would love to help people like figure that out, what that looks like for them as well.
When you carried me, when you carried me home, draped over your shoulder like the sudden fading fast. When you carried me, when you carried me home, sun over the water, the light we knew would always guide us. If I were... What has been one of the most impactful books you've read or publications you follow? So I, 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 the book question is so hard, but I'm going to say the one that comes to mind first right now because I read it very recently, which is Eli Clare's book, Brilliant Imperfection, which is a book about disability, queerness, and nature. And I could not recommend Eli Clare's work more. Um, I, so that's one quick book. And then I, you know, I, I'm forever grateful for the, what I've learned from Dr. Robin Kimmerer. All of her writing is essential for me. And like, would it, I, I can't really imagine where I would have ended up without that. So those are the two that come to mind first. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? So um, a practice would be just being outside all of the, as much as possible. It doesn't always it can't always be and, and doesn't need to be in like wilderness, you know, it doesn't have to be like pristine, quote unquote, nature. It could just be an urban park or just any way you can be outside. And I, I think also like I do that whenever I can and it's an essential way for me to stay grounded. And then also I think the mantra would sort of be like, I think actually a theme I've returned to a few times already is just the smallness of reflecting on, you know, you're part of something. You don't, you are not alone and you don't have to do it alone. Um, and you're, you, there was something before you and there'll be something after you as well. Mm. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? I think my greatest source of inspiration at the moment would be the people most of whom are just people I know personally, not necessarily like famous people, but like who are just so dogged and fierce about doing their work, right? So whether their work is their writing or their advocacy or their defense, defending of, of you know, of justice and truth. And I, I have a few people, I'm lucky to know a few people in my personal life who are just kind of insane. And I mean this, I mean that word like with both love and, but also literally in their sort of relentless pursuit of making the world a better place. Um, I draw a lot of inspiration from um, my sister who is a civil rights attorney and from one of my friends, Sophie Strand, who's a writer Mm -hmm. um, and my partner who also, you know, is just, they live their life every day with this commitment to their ideals and their vision that is um, really inspiring. So I think, yeah, that's that. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a wrap here, but to learn more and stay updated on Patty's work, you can head to patriciacation.com. We'll have this linked in our show notes as well, including other references mentioned in this conversation. For now, Patty, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been an absolute honor to have you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Thank you, Hamia. I loved being here. It was super nice to have this chance to talk with you. 
I guess I think just um, go outside <laughs> and I think just know that everyone has a role to play in, in stewarding the earth. So tr use your gifts, I think, in the best way you can. If you feel inspired by these conversations and wish to see our podcast continue, please join us today on Patreon starting at just $2 a month at greendreamer.com support. We really do need and so appreciate your direct support in order to be able to continue our ad-free show. You can also really help us out a lot by submitting a five-star review in the podcast app and sharing out your favorite episodes with your loved ones. Green Dreamer is grateful for the support of our past and present listeners and readers and for our partnership with Kaliapea Foundation. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher is Anissa Sima Holly. Our production manager is Emma Jeffrey, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you for tuning in, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.